Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to a good football show. I am your host, Patrick Darty, here today with Mr. John Daigle, Mr. Kyle Dvorak, and Mr. Patrick Corain, where we will be previewing Thursday night football and some of Week Three's biggest games, including the Seahawks at the Vikings and the Colts visiting Tennessee. We will also, as usual, I'm trying to make Corain's stat of the week a thing, even though I forgot to double check with you before the show if you have one. Uh, so I really uh, hope I you have a stat one. of the week. Yeah, I'll give you one. We're going to drop you out of the rest of the pod if you don't have one yet, oh, no. so you can research that. Um, Denny's not here to fire, so you're fired. Yeah, Crane, is he's he's working on it. He's working on getting fired. Uh, we're through to two weeks, only two weeks, but as we know, uh, even only two weeks, we have no shortage of tilting DFS moments. And I thought maybe we just go around the horn real quick and talk about through two weeks, what has been your most tilting DFS moment so far? We'll start with GPP winner in multiple sports, Kyle Dvorak. Uh, what has been your most tilting DFS player so far in, in uh, 2021 here? Uh, so I, I have been in on the Vikings for two consecutive weeks. And I would say that has looked to to have mostly been correct. And being on supremely talented Justin Jefferson just to see KJ Osborne just banging out six catch, long touchdown type of games. Not that like I actually had like a little bit of KJ Osborne last week, but I was just all in and will continue to be all in on Justin Jefferson. And seeing his lunch getting eaten by like a special teams player who didn't play at all last year is, is it's pretty concerning. It's pretty, pretty difficult for my bankroll. Well, that's some foreshadowing for later in the show. Cause we're going to be talking about Justin Jefferson and KJ Osborne. Daigle. I mean, I, you don't seem to tilt I me. Mean, I know you tilt, you like keep it a little more to yourself than some of the rest of us, but I know you've been tilted so far. Who have you been tilted by? Yeah, Silva is amazed every day because it just seems like I don't care about anything at all. <laughs> uh, but no, it was actually this past week, honestly, because like, Daigle, we've, wow, we've lost really you. Tilted. We're so tilted, we've lost Daigle. We'll go to Crane real quick. Daigle, Am I tilted now? Maybe work on your connection, Daigle. Uh, Mr. Crane, who have you been the most tilted by so far in 2021 through two weeks? Yeah, so it was all over Seattle last week. I had a bunch of uh, Russell Wilson, two Tyler Lockett going on, so that was great. And uh, talking to very, very successful, very smart GPP player, Mike Leone, who pointed out, you know, we're going to get 1% Derrick Henry this week. And I said, no, no, Mike, you can't play Derrick Henry because of all these stats I wrote up on my Friday column, and then that was wrong. So so having the right – so using A.J. Brown instead of uh, Derrick Henry as the bringback in my uh, Russell Wilson stacks was uh, was quite tilting. See, the thing is about Derrick Henry is that he's bigger than a normal dog. The dog, the big dog, is bigger than a normal dog. That's an honor of Norm MacDonald. Uh, it's funny because it's bigger than a normal hat joke from SNL. The Zoomers have never heard of this from the 90s, but – uh, Derrick Henry is funny because he's bigger than a normal dog. That's what you just don't get about Derrick Henry. Stats do not apply, Crane. Uh, I hope that you is have a stat, a, technically. Yeah, <laughs> I Size. hope you have an apology in your column this week that stats just do not apply. Derrick Henry. All I'll say about being tilted so far is, you know, I like to get Galaxy Brain. Um, I don't do cash games. Like, I'm not out here grinding 50-50s or whatever. I only do GPPs, trying to make some rare lineups. And... I thought, what could be more rare? I knew that there were some other people on this Galaxy Brain stack. I'm like, what could be more rare than a Matt Ryan stack uh, for week two? And I did the Matt Ryan stack with Kyle Pitts and Calvin Ridley. And it didn't go as poorly as it could have, but it was still, it was so tilting because it was like just tantalizing enough with two touchdowns that he wasn't a complete zero. But like, I actually watched the game and like he was very physically tilting, just like looked so bad. And I'm like, yep, never. Uh, if I do this again, I'm definitely not watching the Falcons game. I'll what, say uh, that. What contest did you throw that in? 
I don't know, man. I don't know what any of them are. I like the the pylon, seventy five k pylon, or like uh, you know, I don't know, just some contest on. He's like, I don't know. It's called. He's like it was called the the, the Thunderdome or the the nosebleed. They, I don't know. It was they had thirty expensive. points. Like the Falcons actually were there. Then Ryan just threw back to back pick sixes. So yeah, not necessarily uh, his fault. But the contest I entered actually, I believe it was actually called a a showdown with K Cannon. Uh, the entry fee was ten thousand uh, dollars. <laughs> it seemed like a good investment at the time. No, I haven't actually checked back You'll if I won that one or not yet. But uh, we'll we'll check back on that after the show. Uh, we are all permanently tilted. And what better to get everyone tilted than a scintillating Thursday night football barn burner this week with the Carolina Panthers visiting the Houston Texans as eight-point road favorites. The Texans were looking stunningly feisty until losing Terod Taylor to a hamstring injury against the Browns in week two, but now they're going to be breaking in Davis Mills on a short week. Uh, the Panthers, meanwhile, are the only team, one of the only teams in the league, I think, that have yet to play a snap when they were trailing. I believe the only team. They've yet to play a snap when they were trailing. Dagle, what is our buy-in level on Sam Darnold through two games heading into this short week, uh, you know, smash road spot in the Texans? I assume you got that stat from my Twitter account last night as I was going through snaps with a lead and behind. But the media has attributed that stat to their defense, which could be the case since that unit has allowed a league low 380 yards total with an NFL high 10 sacks through two games. But I would tell you, they've just played the Jets and Saints. So we don't know how good this defense or offense really is. And we still won't know after this week, since now it's the Texans on deck. The good news is Darnold, the QB 12 on the year, is still averaging 36 and a half attempts per game with these leads. So he's still a player I trust, especially this week again, as a fringe quarterback one and trusting this offense as a whole, as I'm sure everyone will have thoughts on their condensed target tree, essentially. I would say run real quick point in favor of the Panthers defense that at least they're doing this against bad teams this year, whereas last year the Panthers defense was so bad, like they were the matchup that was being targeted, mm -hmm. not vice versa. So that is at least a step in the right direction for the Panthers. Uh, Kyle, I mean, is anyone streaming Sam Darnold's a QB one this week? I think maybe in theory we would have if the line wasn't so out of control, the total wasn't so low, but is the game environment just going to be too bad for Sam Darnold to be a legit streamer this week? No, I mean, I think it's like a, a great matchup. This is the type of team you want to target. And if they are going to end up blowing out their opponent in this game, there's one of two ways for them to get there. It's either Christian McCaffrey or passing touchdowns, which could also be Christian McCaffrey. So I think the, the idea that, oh, well, they've gotten to the second half and all they're going to do is run is sort of a, like a red herring because if they get to a point where they're only running the football, there's a good, not impossible, but you know, or not impossible that it doesn't happen, but a good chance that you've got the touchdowns you needed in the first half. So it doesn't really matter. But that being said, I think we have uh, like, we'll talk about a quarterback in a later game that has a rushing floor that is just so high that I'm comfortable, you know, passing on Sam Donald for, for, I guess we'll spoil it. Daniel Jones, someone like that. I think you could even argue like Derek Carr could be in that range. So I think when you can have those guys off the waiver, Sam Darnold's probably more of a tier two streamer, but if you play in a deep league where a lot of people are trying to pick up their quarterbacks ahead of time, sure, he, he certainly fits the bill. Crane, uh, do we have any takes here on Sam Darnold? Or, or is no one, I just feel like we can't be that bullish on him as a streamer just because, I don't know, I'm just not expecting a competitive enough game. That would be my take, is that I don't think the Texans are going to be able to push the Panthers in a way that, Maybe they could have with Terod Taylor based on how well he had played. Um, Frankly, let's just be real. They were the best team in the league for the first six quarters of the season. Uh, yes. The Houston Texans. That's, uh, that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Sam Darnold, though, he has been quite good. He's, he's quarterback five in EPA per play, quarterback three in completion percentage over expected. He's been very accurate. But I think the, uh, I think the matchups have a lot to do with that. I, I do think it'll regress. But the weapons here are very good. And the coaching is very good. So I don't think he's just going to kind of turn into a pumpkin or anything. I, I think we're kind of getting what we hope for out of Darnold. It's just been a little hotter to begin the season than it's probably going to settle into. Crane, you mentioned the weapons. Uh, should we be concerned about Terrace Marshall's week two usage where he basically played to a snap standstill with Brandon Zilstra? Uh, he got outproduced. They both caught three passes. Brandon Zilstra did more with his catches. He scored a touchdown. It was one of those plays where it was kind of all scheme. Sam Darnold got schemed wide open. Brandon Zilstra was running wide open. But Daigle, yeah, I mean, did we see anything concerning from Terrace Marshall in week two, or is it just kind of classic early career, early season growing pains for a player whose role will hopefully remain big? 
He's tied with Robbie Anderson with nine targets each right now, and that's the issue, is that Robbie Anderson has become their deep threat, the same guy he was with the Jets. But nine targets isn't really a high enough target share to have complete confidence in him just yet. We need a higher target share for a guy whose ADOT is, I guess, going to be 14, 15 yards per target this year, whereas DJ Moore is exactly who we thought he was, converted to an underneath receiver, oddly enough, but still a 25-plus percent target share through two weeks now. Moore's the guy you're trusting. Anderson is the guy who you want to see his target share increase to trust weekly, and Terrace Marshall's still the third receiver underneath. Uh, right now, without buys, I can't imagine you're in a position to start Marshall anyhow, and you should instead just be entrusting the other two. But overall, we are keeping Marshall stashed and waiting on his outlook. So I was going to ask you, are we keeping him stashed, Mr. Waivers? And uh, I'm glad that we are, because um, I don't want to give up on him yet. Even I, though, and I don't think it was that you, different uh, last week to this week in underlying usage. No, uh, not really. Uh, except for Brandon Zilstrad has vividly illustrated it by first existing. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this guy, kind of. And then scoring a touchdown. I'm like, why isn't this Terrace Marshall? I'm logging off the internet. This was at like 1.15, right after the game started, and I logged off the internet for the rest of the day after the Brandon Zilstra touchdown. Zilstra only ran eight routes, and uh, Terrace Marshall ran around 64% of dropbacks in week one. He was at 59% in week two, so a little bit lower, but the big thing was he, he got more targets in week one, six. That dropped down to three, and Robbie Anderson bounced back from very few targets in week one. So I, I, I'm with Daigle. I think he's definitely worth stashing. A quick question for whoever wants it. Is Stefan Diggs 2.0, DJ Moore, a wide receiver one already? Uh, Kyle, go. Yeah, I'll say yes. If not, you know, you'll be off by, he'll be the wide receiver 14 and someone will be like, oh, you're wrong. And I'll be like, I don't really care. I still won anyways, because yeah, he, like you said, he, he looks and plays a lot like Stefan Diggs and he's a super athlete, even if he's not the biggest guy, he can, and he can win. We've seen it. We saw it last year. You said he's converted back to an underneath, or maybe Daigle said he's converted back to an underneath receiver. That was after converting to a deep receiver. We have seen him do it absolutely all. The only question was, can he score touchdowns? And he's already like doing fine in the touchdown department. So yes, I think, you know, he is probably on that one-two borderline. I'd probably put him at like 11 or 12, and uh, shouldn't be surprising. He was a great college producer. He's been nothing but good in the NFL. He's been able to do it at all different levels of the field. He's doing that again this year. No surprises here. Everyone who is holding steady on DJ Moore is being handsomely rewarded. He actually leads Stefan Diggs in Whopper, weighted opportunity rating, Josh Hermsmeyer's metric, that combines uh, target share and, and air yard share. He's just slightly ahead of Stefan Diggs. So he's, uh, he's looking the part right now. So Crane has put him in the top five than DJ Moore at receiver this week. That's pretty bold. Uh, thank you for that, Crane, for their belief in DJ Moore. Uh, just getting a stone face look from Mr. Crane, who did not actually do that. But uh, my only note for the Texans, I wrote Texans lol. Then is, is there anything we can care about beyond Brandon Cooks? I mean, Davis Mills in the captain spot in DFS, maybe? Is this some contrarian thing? Like Anything we care about in this Houston Texans team whatsoever on this short week? Mark Ingram's getting a lot of carries. That's that's neat. That's what the, that's what they call neat. It's just a thing where two weeks, I, I just can't buy in anything I've seen from Houston, I, especially now that, like you said, Tyra Taylor's playing well, and he's played well at times. It's, it's been a while since he's played well, but he was at some point uh, a, a good or at least a confident quarterback. Maybe he became back to that level, but we'll never know because, again, he's been you know sabotaged by his own body. This time, not the trainers, but at least uh, his health has just undermined him again. I have no faith in Davis Mills' ability to lead this offense to even the Tyrod Taylor levels they're at. So by proxy, I have no faith in Mark Ingram. I guess if you're in a really deep PPR league, David Johnson seeing some looks in the passing game, certainly worth uh, going after if you need the, like like Diggle said with Terrace Marshall. We're not at bye weeks yet. You probably shouldn't need to get this deep, but you could if you went zero RB, if there are worse options. Mark Ingram is Peyton Barber is Carlos Hyde. Yeah. Uh, 14 carries didn't even matter. Just five points in PPR leagues. Uh, that's why he was not an addition in the waiver wire in week two after his big performance because we knew the Texans weren't going to hang around anyways. All I think about is Davis Mills being 40-1 to 1 at points bet right now, leading the league in interceptions. That's the <laughs> way I'm attacking this. Unless, Corrine, you can convince me that Brandon Cook's targets are not far skits from Davis Mills. Otherwise, there's really no other player to play on this team. Yeah, so Pat wrote LOL as the notes on Texans side, so I figured this was a good spot to try to come up with a stat of the week. So I went digging on Brandon Cook's, oh. get some stats. So here's a good one. Per the Athletics, Aaron Reese, Davis Mills targeted Brandon Cook's on half of his 18 attempts in week two. Ooh. Looking for Brandon Cook's. <laughs> Brandon Cook's second right now only to Debo Samuel. 
in Whopper, he has a 36% target share, a 51% air yard share. So I think, yeah, I mean, Cooks is the guy here. I would feel somewhat comfortable starting Cooks, even though it's going to be really gross to watch. He's going to get a ton of targets. Yeah, Nico we, Collins also landed on IR earlier the week. Right. So Danny Amendola so. is also hurt. I, um, I think you're starting Brandon Cooks for the target share as a wide receiver, you know, three high end wide receiver three this week. Yeah, I am. I'm very curious to see if we get prairie yards though. Like are the targets actually going to matter for Brandon cooks when it comes to Davis mills, he's truly going to test that hundred plus targets every year for the rest of the season. Now I'll just say smart man, Davis mills backup quarterbacks, either lock on or their number one receiver or their number four tight end. There's like no in between. He at least chose the number one receiver. Uh, Davis, we're, we're all thinking about you heading into this game Thursday night. Uh, I think you're going to need our thoughts, maybe our prayers. We switch gears to Bears-Browns, where Justin Fields will be making his starting debut after last week's relief appearance. He predictably struggled as a passer, being thrown into the game mid-game, but he notched 10 carries for 31 yards. Kyle, what is the rankings line for Fields this week? Who are we starting him over? Does he crack your top 12 by any chance based on the dual threat? Uh, where, Where do we have Justin Fields this week? Yeah, I think you could perfectly comp him to someone like Jalen Hurts, who we saw in week one, tears up the Falcons defense, but then comes back to earth last week, doesn't pass particularly well. But again, now, I believe it's five games, if you throw out the Washington non-start, that he has gone over 60 uh, rushing yards. And I think that's exactly what Justin Fields projects to look like, especially with not having, you know, the best receiving core, not playing like he did at Ohio State, where he didn't have a ton of rushing yards at Ohio State. But that's because he had a line and receivers that he could just sit back and just throw bombs to. And he didn't really have to use his legs. I think with better competition, just playing at the next level and playing on not the best team, he should actually be forced to run the ball more. And we know he is a super athlete. He is like a Cam Newton level of athlete. So if you just project him to be some sort of proxy, maybe like a rookie season Josh Allen type of runner, that already puts him in the QB1 conversation. And I think he is a really good passing prospect, let alone having obvious talent on the ground. So yeah, I probably have him at that back end QB1 range pretty comfortably too. Just the guys who don't have really much rushing equity, it's so hard to get them. Like Derek Carr's played super well. On my life, I'm never ranking Derek Carr over Justin Fields until we see, like, Justin Fields has to play, like, Tim Tebow or something to truly be (laughs) worse than the pure pocket passer. So, yeah, I think QB1 is pretty safe to say, even if you're saying, like, that 10, 11, 12 range. I think you made a really interesting point, by the way, about Justin Fields as a rusher, where, like, if you watched him in college, he didn't really feel like a true dual threat because he was such a good passer that he wasn't, like, looking to run nearly as often as you would expect. But I think that's a great point that he's going to have to be looking to run way more. And uh, I'm really, I am banking on, and by the way, I have him ranked uh, ahead of Derek Carr. I haven't ranked Cam Moore as like a mid-range QB2, just like hedging a little bit. Uh, Cause it's, you know, it's just such an unknown, but I and, do have him ahead of Derek Carr. And honestly, you couldn't draw up a worse spot for his debut. This game features the two teams in the top six of run play rate neutral game script. So we expect the pace to be sluggish and the volume to be low for both sides. Fields also won't take the Browns by surprise since they play Lamar Jackson twice a year and are coming off a game in which they already prepared for a rushing quarter. We've lost Mr. John Daigle. And I'm going to go to Crane about Justin Fields. Let's start talking about Justin Fields, Crane. Three, two, one. Well, I heard this interesting point uh, from John Daigle earlier that, uh, that <laughs> you know the Browns they see Lamar Jackson twice a year and, and they just uh, they're just coming off prepping for a rushing quarterback. So that was a pretty good point. Uh, but yeah, I think Justin Fields. I'm probably a little bit more bullish than you just because of the rushing. Um, and you know, if we get the rushing floor, then anything we get, you know, unexpectedly in terms of passing volume gets us gets us higher. So. Uh, I, I'm excited to have him in some lineups. I've been stashing Justin Fields. Uh, I have him on a couple teams where we've been kind of streaming quarterback, waiting for Justin Fields to come along, happily plugging him into my lineups this week. Just to double down on the speed, like I don't, I never want to say his forty because I, I remember he runs a four five, and I think there is just no way that's accurate. And it is true. I double checked on this. Dude runs a four five at like six three two twenty five something like that. Like that's that's peak running back level athleticism that's not just good quarterback athleticism that is like better athleticism for the entirety of the nfl like all skill position players and i always think i'm like nah he can't run a four or five that's so fast for a guy of his size and i look it up and it's true every single time it has never changed he's incredibly athletic he's just a freak i would say he looks big too like which you know it's a silly like football guy thing to say but he's like looked his size to me on the field like 
he's like as advertised basically in terms of like kind of like physical and like imposingness i don't think that's even a word but he just looks imposing i i'm always kind of a cautious ranker but i i definitely i'm open to like the aggressive justin fields cases i wouldn't be surprised at all if he hit the ground running as a qb12 right off the bat i was going to throw this next question to daggle he's having some internet issues folks so kyle or pat what did we see in david montgomery's week two usage it subtly changed over week one and is he kind of getting base? What are we seeing to do? Are we believing in him or Damian Williams as the pass catching back? Kyler Pat, I don't know who wants to take this. I'll take it. Uh, we saw like, yeah, his, his pass catching usage went up. I believe he saw three, uh, three catches and Damian Williams only saw two. And I believe that was flipped the first week. It was like a five to one split in terms of either receptions or targets. So maybe we see more of, of Dave Montgomery as a pass catcher, but I, I'm not convinced because we have seen throughout Dave Montgomery's career that they want to use someone, whether it was Tariq Cohen, despite Tariq Cohen playing awfully inefficient last year before, I believe, tearing his ACL. And then this year, they open the year still giving Damian Williams some work. The team has done nothing but indicate they want to use Dave Montgomery as a two-down back. The only upside is that he is like he just looks faster and has played faster. Like his next-gen stats say he's faster as well. So maybe he has a, like I believe he has a much smaller share of the routes of the targets than he did sans Tariq Cohen last year. But if he makes up for it by being literally just a better running back, being faster, more explosive, getting better throughout the off season and being able to produce more yards on the same amount of carries, you take the trade off, or at least you accept the trade off. You'd rather have him, you know, he can be slow and get seven targets a game. That's all you need, but you at least accept the trade off and you're probably still starting him pretty confidently as an RB two. I don't think Damian Williams disappears though. I do think he at least serves as probably half of the, of the pass catching back. Whereas last year without three Cohen, there was nobody else getting snaps. Yeah. The game plan for DeMont nation is force the issue, David, leave them no choice. And my pet theory remains his, his snap, his passing game involvement would have been heavier in week one. If he hadn't like tweaked his finger, and I'm clinging to that one data point as uh, why I was kind of artificially low in week one and why I'm not surprised they went up in week two. Crane, do we have any Montgomery thoughts or do we need to move on to the Cleveland Browns? I, I don't have too much. I think it'll be split going forward. Um, I, I probably Boop. overreacted to week Cut one. His mic. Thinking that, Cut his mic. Cut his mic. <laughs> at the end of the show it's just pat talking it's just it's just already talking because daigle's yeah. internet is gone Karain has been canceled and then at some point i will support some player that he doesn't like and uh, i get cut out of here too so it's just really a monologue a show. Movie vibe to it right now gone. <laughs> it's lonely in here I'm, I'm hanging on for dear life no i was actually gonna say i probably overreacted to week one and was too low on montgomery so i think montgomery and i know you're the you're the montgomery boomer so which i didn't want to be this uh, i didn't choose this life demont nation found me <laughs> the demont calling found me i just saw the light Crane, i'll stick with you assuming odell beckham actually makes this 2021 debut this weekend what is his rankings line can can he crack the top 36 or do we kind of need to give him like a wide receiver four probation week I put the line at wide receiver 35. That feels right to me. Yeah, because it's like, and I probably take the lower side, the the worst ranking side of that, but I think that's the over-under right around wide receiver 35. I, I have him as the wide receiver 33 between Tyler Boyd and Brandon Cooks right now. It feels kind of slightly aggressive to me. I mean, Kyle, do you have him in the top 36? Or, yeah, I just, I, wide receiver 35 feels like a good dividing line to me. So what side of that are you on, Kyle? I, I'd be maybe a little more comfortable pushing up, but not to wide receiver two levels. I, I'd probably just put him somewhere a little closer to 30. And my only rationale for that is who else is this team going to throw to without Jarvis Landry with them having no set rotation for their number three receiver? Like week one, you would have said it looked like Anthony Schwartz, but he was actually, he ran way fewer routes and played fewer snaps than Donovan Peoples-Jones. Then Rashard Higgins pops back up in the lineup in week two. So I don't really think they have an answer outside of praying Odell Beckham is healthy enough to play as many snaps as they can give him and run as, run as many routes as they can give him. And I still have faith that this offense will be an efficient passing attack, even if this continues to tamp down their volume. So it's almost out of necessity. I feel like it's hard to make projections without making Odell Beckham look really good. But with that being said, he does have more downside risk. Like we just don't know what he's going to look like when he comes back. So for me, 30, I guess I'm a little more aggressive than you guys, but not going crazy with him because I still think there is the risk we're talking about. My most tilting DFS moment is actually when my internet just breaks for no good reason. <laughs> but to Kyle's point, I will say 
Beckham, as we know, last year led the Browns in every opportunity metric. And now without Jobbers Landry, you think the same would happen, only at increased rates. Having said that, Cleveland has also attempted the league's second fewest passes at 24 and a half per game, ahead of only that disastrous Saints offense. So while I don't mind being in a position to start Beckham if need be, I have him sandwiched as a fringe wide receiver three with Michael Pittman, Jalen Waddle, Corey Davis, Cole Beasley, etc. I just want Oda Beckham to bury one of 2020's worst memes, and that was that the Browns' passing attack was better without him. They just hadn't found their momentum yet with Kevin Stefanski and his approach. Odell, make us proud this weekend. Next, we head to Colts-Titans, where the Titans are coming off a return to normalcy effort, while the Colts have a quarterback uh, with two sprained ankles. Crane, which version of the Titans are we believing in more? the one that got stomped in week one, or the ones who big-dogged uh, the Seahawks in week two? I'm still a little bit more on the, the team that got stomped to an extent. Uh, after week one, I wrote up the magical formula that had kind of driven the Titans to being this really fun offense appeared to be gone. And that formula was play-action passing and pace. And we still actually saw them not really be that team in week two, Tannehill quarterback 15 in play action last week. He's quarterback 27 on the season and they still haven't been very fast. They're 26th currently in situ- situation neutral seconds per play. So they're still playing pretty slow. They're still not using play action. I think that, you know, clearly Derrick Henry can still get there based on what we saw last week, but it's a thinner path. And I also think, you know, we used to see the Titans when they'd go off. Sometimes Henry and the passing offense would go off together. And so the thing that I'm worried about, probably a little more than Henry going forward, is this passing game. Because if we're not getting the play action, that's going to affect Tannehill. And if we're not getting the pace, you know, and we're getting a lot of rushes, then we're just not going to have that much play volume. And so it's it's probably the passing game that we should be most concerned about here. But they kind of reinforce some of the concerns from week one this week very quietly you know, given that the the gigantic headline was Henry's fantasy performance. I think everyone's more or less freaking out about A.J. Brown, but Brown has a 22% target share through two games. Uh, to your point in week two, they're at least back up to league average and play action rate. And as we saw, Tannehill is much better with play action, averaging 13 and a half yards per attempt on those plays. So nothing to freak out about here. And really nothing has changed. It's still the same four guys. Tannehill, Derrick Henry, who has 10 targets through two games, played 100% of the two-minute drill, oddly enough, against the Seahawks this past week, which clearly makes him well on his way to smashing his career high mark of 31 targets in a single season we will see if that continues but either way you're not benching Henry you're not benching AJ Brown Julio Jones you're not benching Tannehill most likely so that's kind of where we sit on the Titans offense yeah do we think that Derrick Henry is actually going to be an involved pass catcher because if he is uh, I mean he like that was the problem with him last year is that you can put up 2,000 plus yards and at the end of the day you put up you know a a 14% best ball win rate because you didn't catch passes if he is even modestly involved just like i mean throughout his career he's been a zero as a pass catcher essentially outside of catching one target for 94 yards every 14 weeks or whatever if he is actually involved it would be highly surprising to me but he'll you know he'll be a a complete league winner because as as crane talked about that's part of where legendary upside comes from is just being involved as a pass catcher i would have bet anything that it didn't happen but through two weeks I mean, uh, you know, as we all said, Arthur Smith kind of a fraud and a bad offensive coordinator by not throwing to Derrick Henry, something people harped on. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, <laughs> it would be it'd be shocking. But given he's been an efficient pass catcher, so they never use him like that. Like, Corrine, do you think he uh, like he can be this true league winner like Dalvin Cook plus if he's like, is this real? I guess I just don't know what to make of it. I think it might be kind of real. He's gotten three screen targets in the last two weeks, which. I mean, like, if you're going to use Derrick Henry in the passing game, that's how you use him, right? You know, you get him rolling downhill. I think that – I don't know if he's, he's not going to have this level of target share over the course of the season, but they're using him more similarly to how, you you know, you're seeing Dalvin Cook get used, to how you're seeing Jonathan Taylor get used. Um, both of those guys also have uh, three screen targets through two weeks. So I think that makes a ton of sense. Like, he's not, like, a truly dynamic receiving back, but – you should be using him in the, in the screen game. I'm not sure why he had not been and, to this point. The fact that they are is very bullish. And let's be honest, with Jacob Easton likely on the other side, targets don't matter. He's just going to get all the carries anyways. 
So we're getting Daigle's just predict, uh, you know, the, he's stats proof. It's another big dog game coming, is what Daigle just guaranteed, I think. Well, with, with Jacob Eason, yeah. I mean, we there's no need to like hide what Jacob Eason's going to do. He's going to be Jacob Eason. So it's going to be a favorable game script for the Titans, and they're going to lean on Henry heavily. I'll just put a bow on the Henry talk. Like, so Henry, you know, his career, he averages like one to three targets per game. Like Kyle said, like Crane had to do, if he just ups that even to three to five, it's not like he needs to become like a true pass catching back. If he can just get to three to five targets per week, I do think he probably leaps Dalvin Cook as the RB2. Christian Christian McCaffrey, totally unattainable, obviously. But like if this this moderately increased passing game usually continues, I think he probably leaps Dalvin Cook to be the RB2. I would just want to say before we move on that um, like Ryan Tannehill, there's no concern for Ryan Tannehill as a fantasy quarterback here. I mean, if if we're going I'm to concerned. see games like this where we know they're just going to like completely lean on Henry, they're probably going to smash the Colts. We're not going to get much out of Tannehill. But then even in the, in the shootouts, if they're really running it through Henry still, that does have some concern to me. There is a concern because we are banking on efficiency, most likely not on volume and hoping that play action from week two, not from week one continues. So then really, then we have to play a name game with Tannehill. I'd still start him over Justin Fields, but I think that's where we start talking about like Tannehill or Sam Darnold, Tannehill or well, you're starting Tom Brady for sure. Tannehill or Matthew Stafford uh, around that range really is who you'd be benching him over. You mean Daigle efficiency is the word with Tannehill because his success the past two years under Arthur Smith, he was basically the poor man's Russell Wilson is what I would compare him to. And we just have no idea if that efficiency is going to remain. We, it's totally inconclusive through two games with Todd Downing. We just don't know. We need more. Ret- the early returns, Todd Downing does not appear to be an Arthur Smith. Let's put it that way. And you know, Ryan Tannehill, just, he needs to be managed and manipulated like to the hilt to have success. And I do have concern. I don't know if I have concern this week against the, the Colts where he can have one of his classic like 18 of 25, two touchdowns, 270 yards maybe. Mm-hmm. But he's someone to monitor going forward. As the Colts, you guys alluded to Jonathan Taylor. Can he keep this RB1 train on the tracks? I mean, this week they're five and a half point road underdogs, probably with the backup quarterback in there. And Kyle, are, are the game flow concerns already getting like too real with Jonathan Taylor? Does he need a, a RB1 probation week? Yeah, something I thought was interesting coming into the season was that over the the past few years, the Colts have been really flexible with their pass rate. Essentially, when they had Andrew Luck, they're one of the highest pass rates in the league. And then they were using Jacoby Brissett and Phillip Rivers. Their rush rate went up, but they were still a relatively efficient rushing team. So I do think this is a team that is like, I don't want to say smart enough, but is like a... Uh, adaptive enough to at least recognize when they have a a subpar quarterback and just continue to run the football. Is that optimal? Like I'm not entirely sure because we know how much better passing is than running, but they're at least adaptive to the the talent they have around them, especially with Jacob Eason. That's probably one of the few scenarios where you could argue just stop passing the football. Maybe just don't, don't pass the football at Jacob Eason. So given that we've already seen them use Jonathan Taylor a lot, he is third in combined rushing and receiving expected fantasy points among all running backs through two weeks. This doesn't really is projects to increase his rushing expected fantasy points. I think maybe his efficiency comes down, but it is probably more than buoyed by being the, the focal point of the offense. Yeah, we're going to see an ultimate keep away game from the cold stagle. You're banking on the usage. Uh, 39 touches through two games for Taylor, a league high, eight carries inside the 10, including six inside the five, and yet he hasn't scored on any of them. In-season regression, it's much harder to predict since it's a weekly game than off-season. We can just say, oh, this stat should regress because he was very bad or very good. Uh, But in this case with Jonathan Taylor, you ask yourself, are you going to bench him? The answer is no. And so you just hold the line, find a Najee Harris drafter, hug him, and say, as we expected, we got two workhorses on bad teams. So just keep playing them. I would say with Jonathan Taylor, a a bright spot has been, there's so many people are focused on like the either or with him and Naheem Hines. And I definitely do think the answer, kind of like the Detroit Lions with Swift and Jamal Williams both getting a lot of targets, is both. Like the team's so low in receivers. I think both running backs can kind of safely get five weekly targets. And that would be more than enough to keep Jonathan Taylor afloat as an RB1 quickly on the Colts, a player we kind of debated, argued about over the summer, well, like a film guy, Michael Pittman. Finally, he put an alpha game on tape in week two, but now the quarterback is of course hurt. What are the odds Michael Pittman, not this week, but finishes as a top 36 wide receiver, Pat Crane, like as a wide receiver three is, 
is it still just too thin, too much volatility here? Or do you have any faith in Michael Pittman at the end of the year, you're going through the ranks and he's in the top 36? I think it's a little thin just because of the quarterback play. You know, Jacob Easton comes in his second attempt, throws an interception in this comeback drive. You know, they're, they're going down trying to get a field goal, immediately turns the ball over. So I think that's like kind of exactly what the worry was with Eason. And what we need with Pittman is those types of deep throws, but just not to the other team. He's got a 35% air yard share. I think he'll have some big weeks once Wentz gets back. That should help. He had a really nice week, too. That was awesome to see. But. Overall, I think he's probably just kind of on the outside of that looking in. I still want to see Pittman with Paris Campbell again, too, because I don't think we can take too much away from week one or week two until they're both in the lineup since Campbell was garnering deep targets in week one from Wentz. Also, we have to see if Wentz has any ankles in week six. So we don't know what's going to happen this offense. That's why I feel comfortable starting someone like Odell Beckham over Michael Pittman this week. For sure. He, Pittman's definitely on the other side of the Odell line this week. Very good point, Diggle. Uh, we will be right back. The season is finally here, so get an edge on your competition with player rankings, projections, tiers, and alerts for players both on your team and who you are eyeing up on the waiver wire by signing up for NBC Sports Edge Plus and do it at a discount. Use the promo code good 10 and get 10% off your annual subscription for NBC Sports Edge Plus at NBCSportsEdge.com slash win. Next up is a, I don't know, I was about to say a really fun game mockingly. Then I was like, this is actually kind of a rough slate this week. This isn't a horrible game. Bengals, Steelers, both sides are coming off dismal losses where the quarterback was more hidden than front and center. Daigle, do these Steelers excuses, you know, Ben calling out Matt Canada for the receiver usage, Mike Tomlin saying Ben has a pec injury. Is this confirming what we were kind of seeing with our eyes that he is indeed washed? All of these scenarios you just said are just on loops in Pittsburgh televisions and home. That's the same thing every year. Is Ben washed? Is he mad at the offensive coordinator? The answer <laughs> is always yes. As Roethlisberger is drawing dead, whether he's under pressure, 5 of 14 for 88 yards and a pick this year, or asked to go downfield with that withered arm, he's 2 for 8 for 93 yards on throws 20-plus yards deep. So overall, it's a disastrous scenario, and that's why we keep going back to Deontay Johnson as the team leader in target share, as a top five receiver in the entire league in target share, because that's really all Roethlisberger can effectively get the ball out to, especially with how poor that offensive line is playing, both in the running game and pass protection. So it's, of course, a situation we worry about, because at least Roethlisberger's arm didn't die and become decrepit until like week eight last year. Now we've seen it from the first week on. And so how much longer it lasts, even if he's healthy with his pec injury and they go to Mason Rudolph, who it's amazing is still a backup in the league right now. It's just concerning all around for them, especially because Johnson, remember, battling a leg injury. We don't know what's going to happen with him. We have to watch practice reports this week. Yeah, I think with Ben Roethlisberger, John mentioned how, you know, his terrible deep throwing is actually worse than Jared Goff. An adjusted oh. percentage on his deep Oof. throws. He's actually also attempted less deep throws than Jared Goff, which I think is even more damning. How is that uh, even possible? Really That's insane. He's got three legit. I mean, even Juju Smith-Schuster for a slot threat can be kind of a deep guy, and like Juju Smith-Schuster would be like the best deep receiver besides Tyra, Tyra Williams and the Lions. That is a extraordinarily damning stat and. Extraordinarily damning video, by the way. Go to Daigle's Twitter feed, and you retweeted that video of Ben throwing from, like, May. Yes. He, he was, like, really putting the velocity uh, on it that, like, we could. I may have been blocked for that. But, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I knew the video existed. Uh, ben throwing ropes 30 yards downfield when they were lawn darts, actually. And uh, we should have seen it coming. We should have seen it coming all along. Yeah, you earned – that was worth it. You earned a block for that one. Uh, so, speaking of all this, say Deontay Johnson actually plays this week. What does this mean for Chase Claypool? Because Deontay is clearly the targets leader here. Juju's the sh the slot guy. The targets just feel safer. Can we keep Chase Claypool in the top 36, Kyle? He's at six catches for 114 yards on 14 targets through two games. But is he just going to be the odd man out despite being such a special physical talent? 
I mean, in terms of usage, he hasn't quite been the odd man out. He's uh, basically, even he's one target behind Juju, but his air yards are so incredible because they use him like so many of his targets just come downfield that uh, he's got 44% of the team's air yards. And the only problem is like, what are 44% of Ben Roethlisberger's air yards worth these days? It's such an incredible discount. The conversion rate of Ben Roethlisberger air yards, apparently to even Jared Goff air yards, is just not that valuable. It's a currency you don't want to be trading in. So 36, I would say, seems optimistic. I think he's probably still in the conversation for the flex, but is he one of your top two or three receivers? Like, I, you know, I try and play a lot of leagues that are at least three receiver and a flex. Does he make that third receiver spot? Probably probably not. I think he's a bit on the outside looking in there just because his skill set, despite the usage being there, is so mismatched with what his quarterback is physically capable of these days. And if it's Mason Rudolph, you're going to have start-sit questions for yourself on your own roster uh, among, like, wide receiver three options with Chase Claypool. Because then we genuinely have to question, can Claypool survive Rudolph? Which the answer is no. <laughs> I think it is, unfortunately, no. Yes. Uh, this is totally, totally dismal. Switching gears to the Bengals, who may be one of the only teams that rival the Steelers in terms of like pure talent at their one, two, three for their receiver positions. But it's even more muddled than the Steelers is, is Crane. Would you say through two weeks, do we have any better feel for like what the targets like out like uh, is going to be between T Higgins, Jamar Chase, and Tyler Boyd? Like, what is your going forward rank for like the most targeted Bengals wide receivers? The targets are going to be really tough to figure out how they're going to get split out. But that doesn't mean that we have to just throw up our hands here. We should have a clear preference for Chase and Higgins over Boyd. They have ADOTs far further downfield than Boyd, who has an ADOT of 6.3. Higgins is at 10, which is kind of a classic number one wide receiver type of ADOT. And then Jamar Chase, he has an ADOT of 17.9, which is like very deep, deeper than your, your typical deep threat. So what you're going to see with Chase, and, and Chase has had some big plays. He's got a yards per target of 14.1. He's running really hot on his targets, playing great. You're going to see some big games out of Chase when he's converting those deep air yards. I think Higgins is going to be the most consistent guy with that kind of classic number one A dot. He actually does lead the team in target share. He leads the team in Whopper. So I think he's very, very slightly right now the number one guy. But Chase can pretty easily have bigger games when he, you know, hauls in his deep targets. Boyd just doesn't really have the upside with that eight out of six point three. Of course, he can score touchdowns. He can get in the end zone, you know, on some short targets. But outside of that, he's not going to outscore these other two guys very easily. So I would pretty much always have Boyd ranked number three. I think you can make the case for Chase. As the number one guy, you can make the case for Higgins as the number one guy. That's much more of a toss-up. And it's become an issue because the Bengals have ran the ball at the league's eighth highest rate in neutral game script. That's why one receiver has been sacrificed each week. Week one, it was Boyd. Week two, it was Jamar Chase, even though, like Pat said, Chase is so good that he got there on a big touchdown on just four targets. And so it does seem like at least one will always come in with a low target share unless this offensive pace and approach increases. And I don't know after last year's pace, like, and it did not fare them well. I genuinely don't know if they will. Uh, I'm still on the fence about it, even though some believe and are very confident they will get to higher passing play rates. One interesting note on the I, I usage is okay. on the usage as well is that we've seen uh, three red zone targets, two end zone targets for T Higgins, and I don't believe another receiver on this team has seen a red zone or a target in mm -hmm. the end zone. So if uh, you know if you're looking at trying to decipher the volume. Sure, the air yards, as Crane said, may give Chase a level of upside Higgins doesn't have. But if they're going to keep using Higgins in the red zone like this, I think he makes up for it in that way, too. You're starting both of them. They both look really good. As Daigle said, like maybe their run-heavy approach does end up sacrificing one of them week one. But, you know, getting a, getting a two for 30 game every few weeks is probably worth it when you know both these players are so talented and they're clearly pushing Tyler Boyd to like a very distant number three. Do you have any film concern on Joe Burrow who took that hit in week one to his knee and it seems like the offense has been far more, it could be purely anecdotal, like an arbitrary endpoint, but is there any concern about how he's moving and being used since this fabled hit in week one? Not not really. Uh, he got by on efficiency with nine and a half yards per attempt in week one, back down under seven yards per attempt on just 30 throws in week two. And again, I don't, even think this is a good matchup for him. So when it comes to Burrow and someone like Justin Fields, I think I'd rather just take the rushing floor of Fields in that case. But I wouldn't drop Burrow just yet. He's someone I still have confidence in moving forward. Crane, did you have a closing Bengals thought? 
Well, it wasn't a film take, you know, so that was, it's like tilting when you have a stat lined up and then you're asked to give a film take. <laughs> yeah, you've come to, you've come to a bunch of spreadsheet losers like, y'all guys like watching football and we're like, I guess it's okay. <laughs> yeah. get shut tell, me how, tell me how he looked. We're trying yeah, to expense think... you guys' TVs, by the way, uh, to watch I did... a game. I love film, actually. I was kidding. This was a joke. I actually uh, really enjoyed I'll, I'll take, uh, I'll take Wi-Fi if you ever get a chance to send it. I love watching football, but I'm I'm not uh, studying film breakdowns. I'm I'm in the numbers there. So the numbers that jumped out to me on the Bengals was that they were still below pass expectations this week, but far less so than last week. In fact, they were actually above expectations, passing over expected on first and ten, which was nice to see because they were well below that minus eleven percent in week one, and they were also uh, down. They were minus fourteen percent overexpected in terms of their pass rate in week one that's among all the games we've gotten so far that's only the second lowest to baltimore in week two it was an extremely run heavy game plan that came up to minus four percent still below expectations but much more kind of in line with the rest of the league it feels to me like they're kind of easing burrow in here i don't know if this is going to be the week that we get burrow unleashed but i think it is going to come to where they're not just kind of having a shell of this awesome passing offense. Like we're seeing the offense that we want in terms of these incredible wide receivers is just too low volume, but I think we're kind of headed there and it just depends on what week we ultimately get there. Seahawks Vikings is tied for this week's highest total game right now at 55 and a half points. The Seahawks are one and a half point road favorites, two teams coming off shootout losses. I'll start with you though, Daigle. Is there any reason to be concerned with Justin Jefferson's start from like a top eight, top 10 perspective as a wide receiver one? Is KJ Osborne taking too big of a bite out of this apple? Or is the usage actually has been fine and the production hasn't been there yet? Where are we at with Justin Jefferson? Wi-Fi is working now. It's just <laughs> the individual that's having issues. Uh, I know Corrine has thoughts on Justin Jefferson, and we talked about it on the waiver wire pod too, that Vikings have, after running the league's lowest rate of 11 personnel last year, actually this year, 88% of their passing plays has come from that base package, keeping Osborne on the field for 81% of offensive snaps. But we're still talking about him, even though he leads both receivers, the entire team actually, in receiving yards, we're talking about him having to battle every week with Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, and target share. And so I am still keeping him ranked as a wide receiver five, wide receiver four at best, around the Nicole Hardman, Zach Pascal, uh, Marquez Callaway ring of hell until we see that he's going to get a higher target share. Crane, give us the Justin Jefferson goodness. Tell me that he's going to start exploding for my, my home league team this weekend. Yeah, well, I think Dale's exactly right uh, on Osborne. He's got a lower whopper than Trent Sherfield, uh, right behind Zach Pascal. He's just running really hot on yards per target, 13.9. And on the Jefferson side, he's not running hot on yards per target, but he's being used in a way where we could see that spike quickly because, you know, if you compare him to Adam Thielen, he has a much deeper ADOT, 12.7 for Justin Jefferson, 5.9 for Adam Thielen. Jefferson's the one getting targeted much deeper. He he currently has 50% of the Vikings air yards, whopper of 0.71, which is very strong. He's gotten the most targets of everyone on the Vikings. So it's all there for Justin Jefferson. And the Vikings are throwing like way more than we would have, would have thought they would. So of course, they're being forced to do that by other teams. Zimmer's hating his life right now. But the fact that we're getting this passing game uh, a little bit higher volume, and it's still running through Justin Jefferson, we just have to fade a low yards per target, which is what Justin Jefferson is dealing with, especially when we know the guy with the lower yards per target is used deep and is a star. So I think we're sticking with Justin Jefferson. Still excited about Justin Jefferson. Like you said, Pat, I am sure Mike Zimmer wants to run the ball more, but all of these replacements he put in to replace last year's rookie class on defense, essentially, are just the same guys but older. They're all terrible. So their defense is literally the same thing as last year, except maybe with a better pass rush, at least this early in the year. So that's why, actually, with Kirk Cousins having thrown multiple touchdown passes in 10 of his last 11 games, I am, and I got cut out when saying this earlier, It's I know it's not fun, Perhaps I'm the person who always ruins fun in fantasy football, but I am starting Sam Darnold and Kirk Cousins over Justin Fields this week because I prefer their matchups, honestly. All right, let's let's cancel Daigle again. I like it. I agree. Actually, Daigle promotion because I have uh, both of them higher. 
than Justin Fields as well. I'm just conservatively ranking. Is this the ranking. first promotion you've handed out on air? It, it is. And even even last week we saw it. Like Kirk Cousins, three touchdowns on their first four possessions. Now the second half and the fourth quarter, even for the Cardinals, was miserable. But overall, like the offense cooks whenever Cousins gets to throw. And against the Seahawks offense, I just genuinely don't think they have a choice but to throw. Real quick on this game and Dalvin Cook, uh, the Seahawks were tough against the run last year. Uh, they were very much not tough in week two against Derrick Henry. What is like the DFS outlook on Dalvin Cook this week? Is like, uh, I mean, Dalvin's obviously always a good play from what, like, from some angle, but is he going to be uh, over rostered this week, under rostered? Is it a good week to pay up for Dalvin Cook in DFS? Yeah, I think most weeks are at least perfectly equitable to pay up for him. Right now, he's top five in expected points. He's actually run slightly negative on uh, points over expectation. And most players, I think the expectation is typically correct. But I do think there are a handful of players who we can reasonably project every week to be, on average, above expectation. Like Derrick Henry, I don't care how much workload he gets. I'm not going to project him for the same efficiency as James Conner. I think Dalvin Cook perfectly fits that mold. So if he's going to be top five in expected fantasy points, I think he could be top three, top four in real fantasy points. So I think it's perfectly fine. The only thing that would hold me back from playing Dalvin Cook is given that, you know, we heard Corain and Diggle talk just about the immense workload Justin Jefferson has seen. That's probably my approach. Just how much work Justin Jefferson has seen with the top 10 Whopper. If I'm playing someone on the Vikings, I am more inclined to buy the dip on Justin Jefferson than to play a, probably a fair, you know, uh, rostership price on Dalvin Cooks. I think it'll be well below expectation for Justin Jefferson. And Pat, with your rankings and my rankings when I put them up later tonight, premium, by the way, use the code Dagle10. We will not have the courage, nor would it be wise to rank Dalvin Cook outside the top 12 anyhow, especially after Zimmer came out and when asked about Cook's workload this week, said, at this stage, it's time to get some wins. Dalvin's a tough guy. If he can't play, then there's a reason why he's not playing. He makes us go, so we'll just continue to play him. Basically saying, like, if this dude is 25%, he's going because we suck. So we are still <laughs> going to play Dalvin Cook in redraft leagues anyhow. I can't he- imagine that Zimmer watched last week's Titans performance, Derrick Henry going off and didn't go that. I want that. Like, <laughs> the only way I'm not playing uh, Dalvin Cook in, in DFS is if he's super chalky, which I, I kind of assume I, he will be. So I don't just- I don't think so with the injury. I don't think so at all, actually. Okay. Well, then I'm playing. Especially when you see, and again, this goes to Friday. We'll talk about in-depth Friday, but especially when you see that DraftKings uh, Kalis just like was too busy with buying NFTs and forgot to price CEH accordingly. So he's priced as Jeremy McNichols. Give me a break. Hot take. Got to smash McNichols there, right? (laughs) The Seahawks real quick. I mean, not much to say. Russell Wilson, amazing. Uh, Tyler Lockett, amazing. DK Metcalf off to kind of a Justin Jefferson type start, but nothing concerning whatsoever in the usage. The only guy not doing anything is Gerald Everett. And is Gerald Everett droppable in season long? I'll start with Mr. Waivers, Daigle. Are we dropping Gerald Everett? Are we giving up on this? He wasn't on the drop list. They used him creatively in week one and then lost his usage altogether. Even if you look at all the game reviews from Seahawks beat writers, they even talked about how it was egregious that Everett wasn't involved in this game plan, instead mostly going to Freddie Swain and a couple deep targets. So we're keeping the faith, especially after we saw last week that, again, the tight end position became the worst of all time you just cannot pick the right guy no matter what after the tight end four or five spot so we're still holding on to him the real issue is that Russell Wilson is honestly too good and Pete Carroll has to be hating it because they've run (laughs) just 54 plays in each of their first two games averaging over seven yards per play in both of them which has left their defense on the field which is not good by the way for the highest time of possession in the entire league through two games hence how the Titans got back so easily came roaring back from two scores down in the fourth quarter with ease and so it's the same reason Brian Schottenheimer was fired last year for passing the ball too much I do wonder if we start to see not this week but eventually to monitor slower paced games because that's just how the Seahawks have a much better chance of winning. Also, this game involves the Seahawks and Vikings. It will not be normal. Some team is ruining a field goal. Some team is botching a snap on the last play. Like uh, that's why I like the Vikings to cover as well. This is one of the games. I would like to defend scoring points for a moment. Uh, Please don't stop scoring points. Uh, Well, I I agree with you, but Pete Carroll disagrees with you. Make your offense as slow and bad as possible. He violently, violently disagrees with you. 
Our final game was supposed to be Jets Broncos, but due to an email typo for me, it is actually Falcons Giants. I think everyone here is happy about that. Matt Straub, we're deeply sorry. Uh, I'll get right to the point with this game. Kyle Dvorak is crazy legs. Daniel Jones, a QB one streamer this week. This feels like the two spacemen meme where it's always has been given his rushing potential. <laughs> it, it should come as no surprise that he can be a QB one in any given week. And given the upgrade of weapons, we can at least say he's not going to be literally the worst passer in the league. Like I don't think he's going to be a great passer, but this defense isn't quite playing up the expectations. So they're at least forced to use him like North of 30, you know, he's 32, 37 attempts. If they're throwing North of 30 times per game and he's still getting this immense rushing volume, I believe he's top five, not top three in rushing production for quarterbacks so far. 15 carries 122 yards two tutties yeah he that's all you need to be it's like the justin fields argument you don't need to be that good as a passer to make sort of that qb 11 12 13 range and if you're looking for a guy you can literally have for free you can just pick him up off the waivers absolutely he's the guy i talked about earlier as i given the rushing production i'm comfortable betting on him over someone like sam darnold who i think is better as a pass. like he can't be worse as a passer than he was in previous years he's better but fantasy football wasn't designed to reward being a, you know a good passer it's designed to reward specific stats rushing is one of them daniel jones does that in spades so yeah i think he's like the ideal streamer most weeks but this actually game this game has a total north of 48 i think it opened at 48 and a half that's a good enough game environment to keep firing on daniel jones the only thing i worry about is that of course jason garrett has success against a team he coached against for a decade plus that is the and after they were so bad in week one also we've seen washington's defense fail to be league average through two games so i just i temper my expectations a little bit having said that Kyle, you're absolutely right. Daniel Jones, a career-high seven and a half carries through two games so far, including the team's only carry inside the five, as Jason Garrett has given him opportunities on RPOs inside the 10-yard line. So very encouraging. That's why, also why in the waiver wire column, he was my top streamer of the week. Only Lamar Jackson and Jalen Hurts have more rushing quarterback rushing yards than Daniel Jones, who, I mean, he did like legit, like look fast in week two. Yes. Like he looked like really, really fast, like a legit dual threat. And he regrets to inform us that he is a thing, um, despite being terrible also. Uh, <laughs> very difficult needle to thread. Uh, he's also, Karain, one of those guys, like, usually the dual threats aren't the kind of guys looking for like layup targets like in the slot or running backs, but uh, Danny Jones loves the slot. And Sterling Shepard sitting on 16 catches for 207 yards and a touchdown through two weeks. Pat, is Sterling Shepard a wide receiver too? Is this uh, something we have to deal with right now? So here's how you know that we are all on the internet too much, is that my answer to this was also the astronaut meme always has been. <laughs> what? Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Oh, no. I mean, it's a very similar setup to what Jarvis Landry was dealing with, you know, before he goes down, where you've got these deep threats in Galladay and Slayton, in this case, clearing everything out, and then he's kind of eating underneath. Now, the question will be, does Evan Ingram come back this week? Because if he does, I think that hurts a bit. It seems like maybe he won't. The Giants probably should have put him on, on IR. Definitely should have if he doesn't play this week. But it seems like he's truly questionable for this week. Um, so if we get another week out of Shepard without Ingram involved, probably without Kadarius Tony very much involved either, then it's really just him on those kind of shallow targets. Saquon not as involved as he has been in the past. So... Yeah, I think he's a wide receiver too. It might be kind of tailing off as Ingram comes back, as Saquon works in more, as Tony presumably has his role grow, but for now, for sure. Are any of you taking the Saquon Barkley RB1 plunge against yes. this horrific Falcons defense? Lay it out for us, let, let me do it since I was so bullish on him last week. Bearish. Because remember, he had a short turnaround. We proclaimed, I proclaimed he was a terrible start. He got nine points. No big deal. We benched him. We don't care. But this week now, since it's a week-to-week -week game, we step back and we observe the lay of the land and say 10 days rest after his snaps increased in week two to 84% and his backfield touch share increased to 83%. RB1 workload against a very poor Falcons defense. So yes, uh, it's going to take a couple explosive plays and I do wonder how much he has in the bag since he still isn't at full health, but the workload is at full strength all of a sudden. So we are going right back to the well. Now you can feel confident in rostering Saquon Barkley. And if we're not getting the Eli Manning constant dump offs, and we're probably never gonna get that from Daniel Jones, 
maybe we get some more efficient rushing because Daniel Jones is also running the ball. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe Jones helps unlock some additional rushing value for Saquon that, you know, Eli couldn't. So maybe that's the formula here to where a, a fully healthy Saquon actually meshes with Jones if they're going to continue using him in the zone read type of uh, type of looks. I think Daigle, the only stat that matters is the 84% snaps on a short week in week two. Like that was kind of like the green light to me for with the rest aspect and the matchup aspect. And Saquon, uh, don't let us down. Got you in the top 12 this week. We're all counting on you, buddy. Uh, Falcons, there's simultaneously a lot going on here and nothing going on here. One of the narrowest offenses in the league. Uh, and they're pulling off the difficult task of having Calvin Ridley and also one of the worst wide receiver cores in the league. There's truly nothing behind Calvin Ridley. But the Kyle Pitts usage, I think it's been where it needs to be, right, Kyle? Are we seeing enough from Kyle Pitts to someone to keep projecting to pretty soon maybe be a safe top five option, weekly top five option at tight end? Yeah, I mean, I'm already fairly comfortable ranking him there, especially with George Kittle starting slow. I think now we just have the switch top through TJ Hawkinson just jumps into the group. And now we're talking about is that number four George Kittle? Is it Kyle Pitts? And that still leaves one more spot in the top five open for him through two weeks, 20% of the team's air yards playing 80% of the team's snaps and uh, you know, target share, not incredible, but I do think it's at least enough that especially with the loss of Russell Gage, who would, you know, I assume he's, he's considered week to week with this ankle injury. I doesn't, I would imagine if he's week to week, he's not playing. Uh, who else are they going to throw to from anywhere from 10 yards and below? It's Calvin Ridley as a mid to deep threat. And then no one else, as you said, they had with Russell Gage and like nothing through two weeks. They already had a pretty mediocre receiving core, despite having Calvin Ridley. Now it is literally no one. They're moving from having a tight end who can play, a big chunk of the receiving role to literally having him as a like as a Adam Thielen level of number two receiver. So yeah, I'm comfortable ranking in the top five, even if the production hasn't been there yet. He's getting most of the snaps. He's seeing decent air yards for a tight end, and we know he's a supreme talent. They have no one else to throw to as well. Like unless we just see Cordero Patterson become the focal point of this offense. Hey, crazier things have happened, but I just don't buy it yet. I, I'm still in on Kyle Pitts as a top five tight end. Are any of you concerned with Calvin Ridley, by the way? Like, is he just going to face too much coverage? Like, is he going to be, like, too easily bracketed? Like, or even though he's a special player, is he going to be too easily taken away for a, a team that you have to game plan for him and you have to game him for Kyle Pitts, but no one else? Have we seen anything concerning, to be truly concerned about with Calvin Ridley through the first two games, uh, Patrick Corain? Well, I mean, we thought this offense might be okay and they don't look very good they're not like pushing the pace they're not very exciting so I think that is concerning that we're just going to have him in an offense that's not going to be that great you can still Mm -hmm. get there you can still be a wide receiver one on targets alone but you know it's probably going to look more like some of those DeAndre Hopkins seasons where he's just the only guy rather than you know a fun exciting like AJ Brown type of wide receiver one campaign that we saw last year so you know, there really isn't anybody. Um, I think he's been struggling with the fact that, you know, he used to have Julio Jones across the field from him, taking away some of that defensive attention. Now his number two truly is a tight end. But the flip side of that is if the tight end is a number two and Kyle Pitts is a whopper of 0.38, it's not, that's not very high. That's like a kind of a third wide receiver type of whopper. That does create huge opportunity for Ridley. We should we should still see some really big games from from Ridley when he's able to run hot on absurd target volume. I misspoke earlier. His, his uh, area share is actually twenty six. I was just looking at week two, but something Pat said that I thought was interesting is that yeah, he's not he. I thought DeAndre Hopkins was a good, interesting comp because DeAndre Hopkins, especially as we saw last year, is uh, in that offense, just you couldn't run your offense through DeAndre Hopkins moving 20 yards downfield or 15. They had to scale him back just so they could continue to funnel him targets. And already through two games, we've seen Calvin Ridley's dot drop from 14 last year to 11 this year. It's not monumental, but it's it's maybe not exactly what we expected, just given that, as you said, you know, having Julio Jones let you be a little more creative, a little more aggressive with how you use Calvin Ridley, having Kyle Pitts probably doesn't. So they have to use him more in that traditional number one role not this like going to you know pace the league in air yards by 300 type of role so yeah I do think he gets there in a different way it's not going to be I'm not projecting disaster for Calvin Ridley you just have to project him in a different manner than you would have last year what I really want to know Pat is where you have Mike Davis and Cordero Patterson ranked because 
it's all the same information, right? Like the waiver wire column and then team previews, player props and betting. It's all the same information. It's just parsed differently. So while Cordero Patterson was the talk on Tuesday for waiver wires and tonight for high stakes leagues, like honestly, his vision as a running back from the backfield is one of the worst in the league. You're just rostering him for the targets and routes run. And so like reasonably he's like a RB three or someone you may need to start for injuries as a high floor running back with those targets. So I just want to know, and I want to tell everyone listening, like the reasonable expectation for Patterson's ranking. I have him right on like the RB three, four borderline RB 36. Exactly. And it's a weird situation where like he could maybe struggle for like true standalone value, but he could cannibalize Mike Davis enough because Mike Davis is still getting enough raw touches, but maybe it was just one game. Cordero Patterson was getting the important touches. Like he was getting red zone touches and he was getting like the third and short fourth and short touches. It was basically like when they wanted someone to create yards independent of blocking, they were going to Cordero Patterson, even though, like you said, he's like horrible at like the small things like following his blockers. So it's tough to project like enough usage for Cordero to be like a truly good flex option, but I am worried about him like cutting out the legs kind of of Mike Davis's floor and kind of creating like a really, really troublesome situation. Honestly, what it seems like is that they know they have something, a weapon in Cordero Patterson. They just are still trying to figure out the best way to use it on every single play. Uh, Mike Davis's target share, though, still seems to be there. He's still top 10 in broken tackle rate, even though, again, that stat doesn't matter if you're not getting a lot of volume. Who cares about how many tackles you break if you're getting 5 to 10 carries per game? So we're still watching, but right now I still have Mike Davis ranked higher than Cordero Patterson. You're just hoping he continues to do enough, Patterson, to be a – potentially weekly flex option. That seems like his highest end upside. It does. And by the way, those broken tackles from Mike Davis, they're kind of like, like survival tackles. Cause you know, the blocking is so bad. Yeah. Defenses aren't respecting Matt Ryan. The line they, is horrible. Like breaking tackles, but it's like at the line of scrimmage, just like trying to survive basically. So it's a very, very concerning offense. Does anyone want to put a bow on these Atlanta Falcons? And is anyone else flexing Cordero Patterson? I think nope. he's a little, <laughs> I believe Dago was saying that's his upside, and I agree. I think that's his upside. Yes. But there's yeah. some teams where I'm – I think, you know, high-stakes bids is going to be pretty light on my end for Cordell Patterson. I, yes. I, he's not – it's not like he has some incredible contingent value. If Mike Davis goes down, Patterson's still Patterson. You know, they'll figure out someone else to help carry the load. So um, I wouldn't be flexing him right now if I could if I could help it at all. And, again, I already have teams. There's some – People who went zero RB or just waited. I, I have teams where I have to start Tony Pollard. I have to start Patterson because that's literally like my best option with so many injuries already. I will say the good thing that we didn't talk about for the Falcons offense this week is that I don't know what's happening in their schemes and play calling, but the Giants defense has collapsed, which is why this team has been awful. Uh, after not allowing 30 plus points from week six on last year, this team has allowed Bridgewater and Taylor Heineke to combine for a 75% completion rate, 600 yards and four total touchdowns. They are falling apart. And again, I'm not sure why. I don't know if it continues to happen since Patrick Graham did such a good job and basically keeping Joe Judge's career afloat last year. But if it continues to happen, then it's a it's a good situation for Matt Ryan and a week where he is on his life alert. Cordero Patterson, by the way, is Danny Carter's RB1 on every single team. I believe it. Um, so that is all the time we have for today. The six of the biggest games of week three, we will preview the rest of the slate Tomorrow with Mr. Matt Straub and you know, Denny Carter, even though we already talked with the Falcons, he'll be bringing up Cordero Patterson every game. Check out that pod, rate, review, and subscribe. Check out all of our awesome stuff on the website. Daigle's waivers, even if your league has already run waivers, we know some leagues run on Wednesday. He's got good info on everyone. It's still actionable late in the week. Got the rankings coming out. Mr. Crane has his preview article coming out on Friday. So much good stuff on the site. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you tomorrow. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. 
Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.